by Gurdjiki Fateh. Welcome to Gore to Gore, a heart-to-heart mini-series put on by Suffer, the Sikh Feminist Research Institute. I'm Suffer board member Jaspreet Gore. In this series, we will be interviewing women who have created content, be they filmmakers, researchers, authors, or educators. Our first podcast actually has two firsts. Our board member, Girpa Gore, caught up with Jasmine Gore, who is a first-time author. Jasmine Gore is a poet and a public educator, and her debut novel is called When You Ask Me Where I'm Going. The two had a chance to sit down in Vancouver and talk about this first novel. If you don't, you should follow Jasmine on Instagram and buy her book. You can find her on Instagram at Jasmine. And if you want to keep up with the adventures of the Sick Feminist Research Institute, you can follow us on Facebook at Sick Feminist Research. I hope you enjoy our first podcast. So I'm sitting here with Jasmine Gore, which is such a delight. Um, I've been so excited to have a chance to sit with her, especially after um, reading and holding her new book in my hand, uh, When You Ask Me Where I'm Going. Jasmine Gore, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. This is Suffer's first podcast, and and we were so excited when we knew that your book's going to be coming out, and that would give us a chance to talk about some of the amazing things that you've talked about in the book, and um, kind of do it in a way that um, would give other people a chance to engage in this discussion as well. So yeah, once again, welcome. Um, how do you feel? The book's been out for a week. At this point, you have your big event at Chapters tomorrow, or two days from now. Um, How is it feeling? Um, So it's interesting because you would think that I feel like super, super excited right now, but because the excitement has been like, like ramping up within me for months and months and months, it's like I kind of have like this, this, um, you, it's not like a sudden burst of excitement. It's more like, I just, I know what I've achieved um, with this project, I know that it's been something that I've I've invested so much time on, like years and years and years, and um, I'm I'm feeling good about where I am, and I'm ready to go to the next thing. That's I think that's where my head is at. Like I'm ready for what is to come next. Um, I'm ready to get down to the next project, um, and I'm just like happy that we got to like got to the release date finally because I've been like <laughs> I've been like itching for it for like months. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot goes into this, I can yeah. imagine, right? Like, you're, how many years ago was it that this um, idea first kind of formulated in, in your heart, your your mind? I think I've, I've, so first of all, I've been sharing my work online since 2012-ish. So ever since then, people have been, like, asking me about a book. And I, at that time, I remember thinking, like, I, I theoretically would love to, but the idea of actually creating an an entire book seems like something that's beyond me it seems like something too big for me um I can't like I can't imagine actually creating something that will be bound and will be like held in people's hands and perhaps it was like imposter syndrome or like self-doubt or whatever it was but like I just I didn't think that I was like worthy of a book for so many years even though like folks had been telling me that they are waiting for a book. Um, so when I got into university and started taking creative writing courses and all that kind of stuff, like it seemed a little more tangible to me, but still something very far off. 
Um, but I, even back then when I wasn't, um, perhaps very actively or consciously compiling a book, the pieces were coming together. Um, and slowly all those pieces came together and formed this project. Um, so I think that this has been in the making for like at least seven years. Perhaps I didn't know it at the beginning, um, but it slowly kind of happened, which is interesting, I think. Wow, that's beautiful. And and I think um, reading through the pages of your book, uh, it feels like what you're saying that um, it could have been seven years ago that this started and you may not have even known it. That makes sense. It feels like this book comes in layers. Um, each page you read something and then you, a few pages later, I think um, you read something on, on the topic um, in, that's similar, but it touches even like a deeper note or uh, a different texture. Right. And yeah, that makes sense. I think that could only formulate after um like lots of years of, yeah. of coming together and and um, you can really feel um, the beauty and the weight of that through the pages. So tell us about this project that formulated, as you said, or was formulating before you even conceptualized the idea of writing the book. What is it? What has, what has this um, project, as you said, become? So when I actually actively sat down to compile a book um, in December of 2017, I want to say. Um, my first question to myself was, I have all these poems that I've saved on my laptop. What do I do with them? How do I, how do I create a book starting with these poems as a base? Because um, I knew that I was going to create a lot of new work for this, but I wanted to also think about all the work that I'd saved and accumulated over the years. And then that's when I began to reflect on how I would divide up the pieces um, so that they make sense thematically in different spaces. So I can't even remember how it was that this concept came to me, but I knew that I wanted to um, create a book that felt like a journey inwards into the human body and the metaphysical body. Um, so I came up with five different chapters, um, starting with skin, which I, I imagined as, you know, all the interactions that we as racialized people or people of color um, have with the world, um, how we as women interact with the world, all those things that people are perceiving about you because of like who you are, what you look like, um, your body um, as a woman, perhaps. So that chapter deals with, you know, issues of um, identity, race, immigration, um, you know, misogyny, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the next chapter switches gears where you're now going from my outside, you're going from skin to muscle, you're going a little bit more internal into the body, mm -hmm. you're getting a little more intimate, a, just a, a, a degree more intimate or mm -hmm. a little more vulnerable perhaps. Um, and I imagine muscle as being the symbol for um, action. So like what does that mean to take action, to stand up, to perhaps fight against injustice, um, and also to feel, to feel outrage, to feel anger, um, in all in all dimensions of what anger means, whether that's like anger at um, you know injustice or anger that wants to be directed at a wall. Mm. And sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I I just I you're opening to that um, that 
section. Right. Um, I loved when, um, you know, you open the writing about muscle saying it's a tissue responsible for movement. And then you close that by saying, um, if it doesn't heal, it makes itself heard. Yeah. So I was thinking about the ways in which, like, if a muscle tears, it actually, like, expands. Yeah. So if it's, that's actually, like, your muscle being injured, and now to to heal itself, it's going to just expand. It's going to make itself bigger. It's going to make itself seen. So mm. I think that, like, that was my way of talking about how so many of us have, like, trauma within ourselves. And when there isn't healing, it's not like the trauma disappears. It just manifests itself in different ways it is so beautiful and and deeply profound yeah so continue so you have skin and then you're at muscle yeah so then we have lung um so lung is what i've always described as the emotional pit of the book um i thought about the ways in which um you know when when folks are in a very low emotional headspace when we are depressed, when we are um, dealing with, um, you know, um, existential crises, for example, when we're dealing with anxiety, internal trauma, you know, just not being in a good place. Um, sometimes the only thing we can do with our day is just to breathe, and that's an achievement in itself. So that's why I chose the word lung um, to describe that place where you are just breathing and that's all you're doing. Um, and you're just trying to survive. So this chapter deals with, um, I think it's one of the most vulnerable chapters. I think that it, it tries to capture all of those, those, the, I would say the spectrum of what it feels like to go through mental health struggles. Um, so like I said, anxiety, depression, existential crises, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then moving from there, we go to Nerve. Um, so Nerve was actually the last chapter that I added to this book, but it ended up in the middle of the book. Um, Nerve is a chapter that is an entirely fictional short story. Um, and this story deals with um, the the lives of two Sikh women, um, a Punjabi mother and daughter. Um, and the the mother, Kiran Kaur, she comes to Canada when she's 18 years old as an international student. Um, but she stays in Canada um, because she's carrying a secret, which is that she's pregnant out of wedlock. Um, and this short story deals with why she chose to stay, why she chose to keep her baby, um, the consequences of that decision, um, what it meant for her to overstay her visa, what it meant for her daughter, um, and how their lives play out. So originally, and not a lot of people know this, but originally when I had written the first draft of the book, I had taken Getin and Sahara's story um, and spread it across each chapter. Like I gave a little mm -hmm. excerpt of each um, uh, of their story in each chapter mm -hmm. um, to open them. But we were finding that because their narrative is singular and the rest of my poems are very, um, they, they don't necessarily just represent Getin and Sahara's stories. They mm -hmm. represent the last several years of my life. Mm -hmm. We wanted to bring some cohesion to their narrative and bring piece them all together. So we placed them right in the middle of the book, kind of as like the heart of the book almost, okay. um, and surrounded their story with um, poems, which I consider like, you know, short stories in and of themselves. 
Um, so I named this chapter Nerve because I, I resonated with the idea that nerves um, cause us to feel. And I think that Giddin and Sahara's story um, is in many ways a fictional manifestation of so many of the themes that my poetry deals with, but now I'm allowing you to feel them mm. in a very real, visceral way through mm -hmm. these people that I've created. Um, so I chose the word nerve to describe them. Um, and then we move on to heart, which is a bit more of an obvious one. Um, it's all about love. Um, so this is like love in all dimensions of what it means and how I've interacted with it in my life, whether that's um, love for family, love for like, you know, social justice issues, love for your community, love for the earth, love, love for, um, you know, your loved ones, love in like a romantic sense. So all of that, what it means across the spectrum of its entirety. Um, and the last chapter, which was um, the absolute most difficult one for me to write, was light. Um, so as I said before, I, I created these six chapters to describe and journey inwards, mm -hmm. constantly getting closer and closer to like the the being's core. Yeah. So when I tried to figure out what it is that I wanted to use to describe what is at the heart of a human being or what is at the deepest level of a human being, I I chose the word light, even though it's it's a lot less. Um, physical than the, the names of the previous chapters, but I chose the word light because I wanted to kind of imagine that at the core of a human being, um, at the core of perhaps all these layers of trauma, there is light and there is something deep down inside of us um, that is at peace despite all the stuff that we have layered and packed into the other parts of our body. So this chapter is all about kind of like freeing yourself from all of the stuff that I've just described. Yeah. So yeah, that, I think that was the most difficult one for me to write because the thing is, it's it's about enlightenment in a lot of ways, and that's not something I've achieved. Um, something that we as human beings spend our entire lives, you know, working towards. But I don't think that it's something. It's like a it's a pinnacle or like some place that we just like end up at. Um, I think it's a journey. So that was like really difficult for me to be like, okay, I have to write about feeling free from all these things, but I don't necessarily feel free from all these mm. things. So how do I, how do I just say something that's like the right thing to say to inspire someone to feel better when perhaps I don't know how to actually say that You're thing. You're actually feeling it. So I, I avoided writing this chapter for like a very long time until I could find ways to do it in an authentic way. So how did you do that? How did you, how did you get through those layers through all the stories, all the voices, the pain, the anger, all the things that you've given a voice to in this book that have remained largely voiceless right. in so many of the spaces that you've contextualized in the book. How did you get to that place of light? I think that something that I've <clears throat> always like hated is like, you know, when you go on to social media, for example, mm -hmm. and you see, um, you know, posts that say something like, you're exactly where you need to be and everything's going to get better. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, you know, if you, if you think, if you think positive, positive, positivity will come towards mm -hmm. you and all this kind of stuff that yeah. doesn't acknowledge the reality of like what it is to live in an unjust world. Yeah. Um, so I, I recognize how easy it would be to just like slip into those like kinds of statements. Yeah. But I knew that that would not be authentic to me and it wouldn't be right for like what this was. So I think that it was important for me to write about how, you know, 
I might be having a rough day, but in this moment I find peace. And that's mm. that in itself is is worthy of celebration. We're gonna celebrate those like moments in which we're not hurting. Mm-hmm. And even if they're just moments, that's still valuable. And then we're gonna keep on working on our stuff that we need to work on. Um, and why was that? Why was that important for you for you to have that segment in the book, that chapter? I think that because so much of this book is like very heavy, not in a bad way, but I think like it's just like you're I I hold back nothing, like mm-hmm. I hold back no punches, yeah. like you are like seeing like some raw, some ugliness at points, yeah, and I think that as people of color we deserve to also feel peace we deserve to also feel love um we deserve to also feel free um we aren't just like an expression of our trauma that's that's not the entirety of our beings Mm -hmm. and i think that in like the publishing industry for example um you know we're seeing so many more you know um people of color voices coming out in books but a lot of the times you're seeing traumatic stories that get book deals Mm -hmm. you're seeing like painful stories um, as like the only stories of people of color that are valuable now. So it's like, I could easily sit there and give you an entire book that is just skin, that is just, you know, those experiences of identity politics and racism, but that's not the entirety of my life. And I think that as a god, I deserve to be understood holistically and not just in the segments that are perhaps, um, you know, fetishized or um, interesting to, to white people to read. Yeah. Um, I deserve to be understood in every dimension of what it means to be me. And that means like the, the light and the, and the darkness. Mm. Wow. Welcome back Jasmine Cora. Um, it's been so great sitting here and talking to you and getting to discuss, um, your reflections on the book, hear about, um, how you came to it or how it came to you how it was already there before you um, even thought of compiling it into a book and really getting to hear um, some of the thought that went into why you placed um, what sections and chapters where and really hearing about um, how you worked in the story of Kiran and where it was supposed to be and where it ended up. Um, I had a question about the story of Kiran. So when someone gets it, when someone's going to be reading this book, and I'm sure anybody listening to this interview is going to be really excited to pick up, um, and it's available at Chapters Everywhere um, and Amazon. Um, we should put that note in there. Uh, as you're reading through it, you noted right in Skin how um, you right from the get-go touch on so many vast topics and experiences, stories. And then chapter after chapter, you go deeper into different layers and facets and kind of corners and textures of the different stories and how they intersect. And there's everything from critical race theory to um, gender violence to gendered violence and um, political um, activism, political history, um, Punjab, hair. Of all the different stories that you could have chosen, what was it about Kiran and Sahara's story that you chose to bring everything um, together and give it a deeper kind of light? Um, 
even get uh, more intimate with the different things that you brought up. What was it about this story in particular that made you go with Garen and Sahara? So, as I said before, a lot of the poems in this book, they have been written over the last several years of my life and kind of saved into a document into a folder on my laptop. Um, so the poems really reflect my emotional growth over years and years and years. And the story of Giddin and Sahara started years ago. So it started as a project for one of my creative writing courses, um, where all I had in my mind was this image of this woman, this young Punjabi woman sitting on a plane. And I knew nothing about her. All I knew was that she was sitting on this plane going somewhere. Um, and, and then I imagined a man sitting beside her saying, where are you going? And all this woman says is I'm running away. And then I had to sit there and ask myself, well, why is she running away? Like, let the character speak to me in my mind and tell her own story without me kind of like forcing it. And slowly it came to me that she was running away because she was pregnant. And then I thought, if she is pregnant and she's going to Canada and she's 18 years old, what happens next? What's what's actually going to really happen to her in real life if this is really what's happening? And then it occurred to me that if she's going there as a student and she's pregnant, she's probably not going to have um, a lot of support. Um, and from there, her story kind of expanded and expanded further. I don't want to give away too much because I want you to actually read it and yeah. find out what happens. But um, all these layers of her experience started kind of piling one on top of another um, until I had this whole character. And then I allowed myself to fast forward a time and imagine her daughter now and figure out what it was that her daughter was feeling in relation to all the stuff that her mom had been through and experienced. Um, so this story, this is the first story that I ever wrote. And I wrote several short stories in university, but this was the only one that stuck. These are the only characters that like haunted me in my sleep or that I thought about and who, who became very, very real in my mind mm. in such a way that I could not just let them go and let them be like a, a project that I worked on. Mm. I carried them with me even when I wasn't writing um, fiction anymore, when I was mostly just writing poetry over the last several years um, after university. So I feel like their characters grew with me in the same way that my poems grew with me in the sense that um, they came to me at the beginning and they stayed with me all the way until this book was compiled. And I knew that they had a place in this book. Um, and I knew that there's a serious importance in me creating characters and bringing characters to life who are young Punjabi women. Um, because one, because of the lack of stories like this, the lack of space that we take up as goes in, you know, mainstream um, discourse, um, they deserve to exist and um, be heard and have their stories valued. Um, but two, because um, I've always felt that poetry or poems, the best, I've always felt that the best poems are very succinct stories. Hmm. Um, whether it's a stanza or three stanzas or two sentences, like I should be able to tell a story and be able to imagine an entire situation based on what the the writer has written. Mm -hmm. So for me to be able to bring fiction storytelling together with poetry seemed very authentic to me. Um, and I wanted to 
to challenge people's perceptions of what is possible with a poetry collection. Because um, Geren and Zahada's story is told in fiction, but it's also told in poems. So I've got a mixture of poems mm-hmm. to tell their story yeah. as well. So I wanted to kind of blur that line between poem and fiction. And I also wanted to toy with this idea, which a lot of people have, that contemporary poetry collections are only written in first person. They're only written in my voice. There are points in this book where I'm writing as though it sounds like me, um, but I'm writing in character. Um, I'm completely writing as a fictional character, but you wouldn't know that because it says, um, it's it sounds like the, the speaker is just mm. speaking. So I wanted to kind of expand people's understanding of what poems can do and what is possible for a poem and that's why I include them there. Why is that important? I think that um, it frustrates me that people limit what a poem is. So I feel like there's a lot of, so there are a lot more poetry collections being published now but I feel like there's a lot of like arrogance almost of like downplaying the value of contemporary poetry like I see on Twitter, for example, because mm-hmm. um, actually I'm going to give you a specific example. Okay. So there was, um, I've seen social media accounts yeah. um, where gores specifically mm-hmm. who write poetry yeah. are being like harassed or like bullied or like made fun of. So I've seen this one Instagram account where um, there is this, um, there are quotes that are just like nonsensical and someone will attribute it to myself. They'll write Jasmine Gore or mm. Rupi Gore or something like that just to kind of diminish our intelligence. And I think to belittle an ex- a form of expression that so many cores are like engaging in is like inherently misogynistic and it's so problematic to me and frustrating because um, I feel like there's a lot of this kind of dialogue of like, oh, there are so many cores writing now. What's the point of that? What are they doing? They're just whatever. Is there is there that dialogue? There is, there? I think. There's like in pockets, um, yeah. and I've seen it on social media. But I wish those people understood that as sick women, as six, we come from a very long history of of poetry being like a, an important art form for us. Mm-hmm. And to say that cores don't deserve to take up space in the world because because their words aren't valuable, I think, is like disgusting um and i want to challenge all those kinds of perceptions of like what it is like what it mi- is that i do minimizing yeah minimizing exactly the impact of poetry definitely however few words it may be yeah but how you put them together and how you place them is something you're saying absolutely yeah that's important and in the context of um sick women's history being largely missing huge gaps, huge gaps in historical um, uh, context, huge gaps in uh, storytelling, huge gaps in um, fictional writing. Yeah. Um, Like we deserve to take up space in the world and we shouldn't be diminished because our name is God. I'm I'm both, I'm surprised and also not surprised that there is pockets of dialogue where now you see like five to ten cores um, really making it big, perhaps whatever big mm-hmm. might mean. And all of a sudden people are responding like there's a saturation. Mm-hmm. Like that's ridiculous. Like that's absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Like these cores are doing the job of, you're not only like when you read through your book, you're not only writing about um, 
your day in the life of the moment now, you're writing about history that's been missed and lost absolutely, and not spoken to. So Gores today are doing the work of filling in a lot of the gaps of decades past, of centuries past. Um, so, okay, wow. So um, you said that uh, the story of Sahara Inkaran is a story that stayed with you beyond the confines of school even when you weren't writing um, anything but poetry, their stories that you said they haunted you. Uh, to be able to, um, I guess, dive even deeper into into their lives or bringing their lives um, to life, uh, did you have to do some research around? You want? Do you want to share some of that? Yeah. Um, so, Gideon, my character Gideon is undocumented, um, and I. So going back to that, this, the way I was describing how I developed her character, um, when I realized that Gideon, as an international student, wanted to stay in Canada and raise her child, I, it hit me like like a ton of bricks suddenly that this would this would mean that she's undocumented. And I think when it hit me that that's the reality she's gonna have, I was like, okay, there's this this is the story now. This is the story that I need to write of how she deals with this whole situation. Um, and the consequences of being a young single mother who is from Punjab with a language barrier and undocumented in Canada. So young single mother, um, pregnant, yeah, or now like yeah, yeah, so like pregnant at that point and going to be undocumented yeah. in Canada in on the backdrop of an anti-immigration context. Yeah. yeah. So when I wrote it in university, like I stopped. Um, after chapter two because I got busy with other projects so I left it kind of like on the shelf when I jumped back into it um, so what was interesting was when I when I approached my publisher the intention was only ever to write book one um, my my publisher my editor um, in our first conversation she said well what do you want to do next and I said I would love to take this you know this short story of Gideon and Zahara and turn it into a novel and she said, okay. And then when, when it all came down to it, when she made an offer on the book, she said she wants a second book as well. And that's how I jumped back into writing this novel wow. um, for, uh, for book two, sorry. But that's, um, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, um, excited for that to come. <laughs> so when I started working on developing book two, which is, um, which follows Get It Into Hada's story further. Okay. Um, and that's, brand new information that anyone knows that yet. Okay, we are so, so excited. We are so excited to have that information shared with us first here. Um, I had to do a lot of research on Canadian immigration law because when I first imagined it, I assumed that um, the situation would be very similar to, to what happened in the U.S., but I understand now, after doing tons of research um, into Canadian border law and immigration law and laws yeah. around undocumented people that it would be a very different situation for them um so uh, the biggest bulk of like understanding their story was understand the nuances of the legal parameters of what was happening and then trying to kind of um understand Giddens' rationale for trying to do the things that she would do or have to deal with all the the issues like so for example i never thought about how an undocumented mother would um, register her child for school while she's undocumented. So that's like one example of things where I was just like, oh my God, what the hell is she going to do? Yeah. Um, so just things like that. Um, 
the other thing was I I had the chance to speak with um, a woman who was undocumented in the U.S. and kind of understand her perspective on like what her life was like. And I think that was one of the most like important things that I did in writing Gideon's story. I think that there's a huge responsibility when you are when you are writing a character whose experience is not your personal lived experiences. Yeah. Um, you have an absolute responsibility to listen to the people who have had those lived experiences and try to honor their story on their terms and not how you think it would go on your own. Yeah, especially um, when there's so many of the stories available of undocumented folks and um, whether it's the temporary workers program yeah. here in Canada um, or this influx of uh student visas but you have to meet all these requirements mm -hmm. and the implications of if you don't so that's really um that really means a lot to hear that that um that amount of reflection and research went into uh, the story and it shows it shows in, in the nuances of the of the um the situations that come up much to talk about in this book and I love that we're actually able to jump from chapter to chapter and into Giran and Sahara's story and back out which is sort of how you kind of laid it out in the first place um, uh, and because their stories like you said are woven into each of these chapters through the different poetry. I was taken aback and um, really gripped by uh, so much of the writing in the book um, one of the story, uh, the poems that you've, um, I think performed, um, a few times, um, I wrote it out word by word, um, uh, because I thought it, um, it said so, so much and it's the, um, uh, he tells me he doesn't care about politics, um, but I wonder if he can see the political boundaries on my body the conflict zones between my shoulder blades, the border built between um, my tongue and eye, the partition carved into my palms, all the ways in which it is political for me to live. How beautiful. <laughs> What's the reception to that poem been like? I know you've, 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 I've seen you online perform it a few times. Yeah, so the last time I performed that poem publicly was at an event with about 150 um, book reviewers, mostly who were white, which was very interesting for me. And I began by talking about how, you know, when I walk down the street, as soon as I leave my house, um, as soon as I enter like white spaces, I'm very cognizant of the fact that there are eyes on me, there are eyes following me wherever I go. Um, just looking at my facade, looking at my face, looking at every part of my body, kind of feeling that sense of ownership to stare at me. And I talked about how invasive and violating that feels to constantly have people glaring at you or staring at you or commenting on your appearance or telling you to go back to where you come from. Um, and I, and I explained to this largely white audience of white women that when eyes are on me, when eyes are glaring at me, as I described in the poem, I understand that in, those, in the minds of those people, 
they have already crafted an entire narrative about what my life is like, whether they think that I am oppressed because I am a brown woman with this thought, whether they think that I'm like a terrorist or whatever it is that they think. They have a whole story in their mind already made up about me and how dehumanizing it is um, to feel like you can't tell your own story. So I, the reason why I write is because I want to take those narratives that have been created about me and instead craft my own narrative because it's frustrating to live in a world that constantly wants to tell you who you are and what your story is. Um, and I and then I shared this poem. And then with that context, I I think that understanding was deepened for those folks. Could, could you could you see that on their faces? Could you see that in the reception? I think I could definitely see like the eyes widening a lot. Um, I think that there, so I remember like, you know, running into white people who read poems like this, um, uh, this poem specifically where mm -hmm. they're like, oh, like, you know, why are you so like aggressive? Why are you, you know, it's not that bad. Why are you making a big deal? Why do you act like you're so oppressed? Wow. But I feel like people that have those perceptions have come to my work with a closed mind already and they haven't come with the understanding that they they have the ability to learn from women of color. Mm -hmm. When you come with like this kind of arrogance, um, you're not going to gain from this work. You're going to feel defensive mm. because my work, like I said, this book is very raw. I don't soften the punches. I don't make you feel better about yourself. I just mm -hmm. tell you the truth as it is. So if you come to the work um, already trying to shield yourself as a white woman, for example, then you're not going to have a good time here. <laughs> I can yeah. just tell you that right now. Yeah. Um, but if you come to it willing to listen, willing to recognize your privilege, I think your reading will be very different. And what's interesting is so many of the reviews that my book have gotten so far, um, so many of the reviewers on Instagram, for example, are white women. Um, and it's interesting because I see a lot of white women saying that they are learning from this work, which is very important to me because that was my greatest intention for white people who read it, to be able to learn. Um, and it, you might not resonate with every single poem because every single poem isn't written for you and that's okay. But you can you can still learn from those pieces and you can learn from my perspective. Um, but it's interesting because like this conversation that we're having right now is one of the first conversations I've had about this book with a sick woman. Um, and there's like a lot of healing power in that to be able to to discuss the work with the person who it is meant for. Um, yeah. I often describe my work as a serenade course to sick women. And by that, I mean that while I might be um, sharing this work in a public space, the dedication remains to who it's for. You might resonate with a love song that someone is sharing in public, but that doesn't mean that you are the object that that specific person is speaking to in that moment, even though it's still meant to be heard by you and experienced by you. So I think that I'm very grateful to like be able to sit here and have this conversation with you. Well, that that means so much um, to hear you say those words. And I'm sure for um, so many of the women listening to this, to, to know that there's a core, you know, born and raised, here in you know North America um, has done the work of reaching so deep inside herself and deep, deep 
and reaching beyond yourself into stories of the past of our mothers and our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers and written something for us like that is so so touching and I'm, I'm so moved by that 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 I can say that there's there's something on this shelf that was written for me and that's I could say that for my for my daughter yes. in the future it's written for them um, so that's a real honor um, speaking of, of that it's it's woven throughout it's woven throughout the book with I love how you pick in I'm not even sure that was one of my my questions of how did you pick and choose which words that you um, translated um, had the Gurmukhi writing um, and um, and I was like okay so, like you had like Sabar and Pakarang Enu and then you had Code Switch yeah. <laughs> I, I lo loved it and and then so there's definitely this like um, way of um you know well so many of the poems and especially uh, on pages like these where you're like oh my gosh like what Punjabi household especially what Gore has not heard that word those two words being thrown around you know you go to a wedding and you know like like where you know and and then there's other other poems in here there's so many that there's um, there's no context to uh, the Punjabi or the woman or the sick uh, woman. And um, yeah, I can imagine um, white women or any women and men um, being moved by them. And one of those poems for, for me um, was uh, on page 11, for those that might be wanting to follow along, um, that you said you're trying to, well, I don't know if it's you or if it was a character, but I'm trying to settle into my body. And then I think a couple of stanzas down, it says, but eyes knock at the door. That poem, I don't have it in front of me, otherwise I would, I would read it. Um, it's like, what, what woman doesn't know that mm. story? Yeah, definitely. I think that poem, um, it, I, when I wrote it, I was thinking about the ways in which, um, you know, people will tell you, oh, just love yourself. It's all, you know, you're a core, just love yourself. But like, you should feel proud. <laughs> love yourself. Yeah. Right? Just stop being insecure. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Period. Yeah. But like no understanding of like what it actually feels like to, to feel explain how you felt about it and why I wrote it. I'm trying to settle into my body. Feel comfortable inside its walls. Stay long enough to decorate each room. Sit at peace within me. I'm trying to come home to myself. I really am. But you underestimate the way eyes can knock on doors and break through windows and tear down foundations. How eyes can whisper and laugh and scream. You underestimate the way hate can pull me to tears and push me to leave once again. So when I wrote this, oh, I, I was thinking it. about, I was thinking about how, you know, we are just told to love ourselves, um, but not... Um, reflect upon 
all the layers of oppression that stop us from loving ourselves in a very like violent way every single day of our lives. And I was thinking about the violence of like how this world treats the bodies of women where it constantly feels like we are objects um, set on display in a public context to be critiqued to by strangers, usually men, interestingly enough, um, to feel like we're being like torn apart, dissected um, under a microscope, to feel like we are literally objects um, that need to conform to a very limited concept of what womanhood is or what femininity looks like. Um, it deals with like the pressure to fit into that and the pain of trying to fit into that. Um, and I think that the poem speaks for itself in a lot of ways. Um, that's me being very painfully honest about just how much it hurts to have had my body like dehumanized throughout my life because of my appearance. Um, because my appearance doesn't conform to perhaps Eurocentric ideas of what is beautiful. Um, and that's why I wrote it. Yeah, and I, and it really, it, I mean, no pun intended, but it really hit home. Um, you said that sometime there's been comments um, from white women or otherwise, I'm sure you get comments from men as well, um, around uh, the idea of, oh, come on, you're not so oppressed, or like, you know, where's all this pain really, like, coming from? Yeah. And I felt like this poem, if someone takes the time to really sit with it, you're calling your body your home. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to be there. Yes. You're trying to get comfortable in there. You're trying to feel good. You're trying to love yourself. Yes. Accept yourself. You know, be proud of yourself. And you name the ways that you get ripped out of your own home. Yeah. Because society through eyes, through media, through words, through what is is shown as being valued mm -hmm. and what is not, through money, you're being told that your home just isn't good enough. Yeah. And how counterintuitive is that to not have a space in your own body which should be your home, to feel like you're being pushed out of yourself. But that's really what this world does to women. It doesn't allow us to, to simply feel happiness having a space to exist in as a body like our bodies aren't enough because they're not the right kind of body they're how, not the right how kind wild of body. is that and as a <laughs> as a Punjabi sick woman's body where you're constantly either like you're not religious enough you're either too religious you're not the right kind of religious mm -hmm. you're you don't have a right anymore for whether it's showing your shoulder or um, uh, you, um, plucking your eyebrow. You don't have a right to claim your Sikhi anymore, according to some. And um, so it's not so it's not just the the critical race gaze. It's not just the sexism, the objectification, but there's like other places in our home that we're trying to find space for ourselves in, trying to find our place in Sikhi or in our relationships with Waiguru. And when you're constantly being told that it's not right. I think that in every angle of my life, I've always 
felt like my body is like open for critique and it's very strange it's like no matter what I look like I understand that like strangers will feel like my body is theirs to dissect and it's just so weird because it shouldn't be normal like that's that's something I've come to accept as like the norm. You say here you're like, but you underestimate the underestimate the way eyes can knock on doors and break through windows and tear down foundations. How eyes can whisper and laugh and scream. Yeah, and I mean here we're look, even as we're talking about this poem, we're going from the the white racialized gaze to the gaze uh, of men um within our community. Um and uh we've also reflected on um the ways that we'll hear that, you know, speaking about our bodies from women. Um and but in in this book, your your poems, there's something it feels like for everyone. I when I was taking writing down notes, it's like you were you were talking about the war the war on women's bodies, but you also talked about um, the war on boys. You contextualized um, a lot of the violence in, that I'm assuming that you're speaking about in the community that you grew up in here, and how um, Punjabi boys. Um, uh, violent, like what is seen as, you know, Punjabi boys' actual violence that has exist, how it's been superimposed onto them as being violent beings, and then you did the work of contextualizing that within a, um, a critical race analysis of living within a segregated community. Um, and um, I felt like you, it was just like you, you were able to tie in so many different narratives um, around uh, the same themes. And so here, what you're talking about, how it might not be your story, you even talk about um, Chimananda's single story, um, that how that wasn't available when you were growing up. There, there wasn't like um, kind of like a, an intellectual community taking that into consideration. But it feels like you do that. You do the work through your poetry of, of, um, of, breaking the single story. Um, so here, when you're talking about, you're talking about racialized bodies and you're talking about it as a woman, then you also bring in um, the gendered, um, uh, the violent Punjabi boy story. And then that you tie that in into your story once again of when you just uh, remember being in school one day where there's a couple of boys who are getting in trouble. And then there's this white administrator that walks in and says, you boys are this way because you're um, Punjabi dads are so rude and that's being said to all of you so I feel like that was a really important part of the story or to part of the uh, so it was an important narrative for me to talk about because I've always believed that um, our oppression and liberation are intertwined with one another as human beings um, however um, we identify on the gender spectrum like we are all our our oppression i sorry our liberation doesn't come in isolation um we are liberated side by side um and we're also oppressed side by side and the the toxic um you know patriarchy that yeah. exists within men it also affects women um and affects future generations of men yeah. so if i wanted to touch on just 
the fact that I've seen so much of that in my community and it's important it's an important issue for for us to reflect on especially in Abbotsford where um far too many Punjabi boys um have lost their lives um due to you know interpersonal conflicts or like perhaps gang conflicts or whatever it is or just you know bad ways of dealing with um you know aggressive tendencies that no one ever taught them could be solved in non-aggressive ways um so with that poem i was really like so one of the so i'm a teacher professionally outside of poetry writing um and one of the reasons why i became a teacher was because of that poem that i wrote um in which in in that year of elementary school um you know a teacher a white teacher yelled at all the boys who were all Punjabi in our class because two boys were misbehaving and I remember as a child thinking to myself oh this isn't very nice of him this isn't he's being a he's being mean mm -hmm. but I didn't know at that time as a child that he was being racist because yeah. no one had had that conversation that your teacher's can be racist yeah. or that they can be wrong. You just assume yeah. that someone in a position of authority who's a teacher, whatever they do it, that's just the rules. That's just yeah. the law. That's yeah. right. So I think as I grew up and I, I still remembered this experience, it kind of dawned on me that he was a horrible person yeah. um, for, for doing that to those kids. Um, and it made me realize how important it is for Punjabi kids to be able to see themselves reflected in their environment and the the potential value of having a teacher who who is Punjabi who understands the cultural context of your life um, and isn't going to make you feel like a horrible human being because yeah. of your literally because of like your ethnicity yeah it doesn't other you and yeah. then tell you you are who you are in this horror like you're a horrible being yeah because you come from horrible people yes literally it, that's yeah like when you put it like that yeah. it's like wow like he really tried to instill that in these yeah. little you know kids and that's what i loved over and over about your poems in this book is that you i felt that you brought voice to stories over and over that have been largely voiceless and and truly in the context of abbotsford and that story that you shared i am sure because i have stories very similar to that multiple of them my brother has multiple ones and so hearing you um or seeing you put that in this book it's you put something down on paper about that happened especially in the last couple decades over and over and over um for um our generation of kids that were growing up here going through the school system and it it was normalized it just had to be it was accepted like you're saying um so that meant a lot that was really inspiring and um it kind of made me wonder if there was any chance of this book i mean knowing that it's dedicated for sick women but kind of like if it's like the trojan horse you know like what is the chance of you know these this generation of white administrators actually that exercise a lot of racism in their power and now are some half retired some in like higher positions um what are the chances that this book ever makes it to their hand and like they end up reading some of this and reading um about the trauma of racism about being that child hearing this um uh because it's in this book it's it's possible yeah, and interestingly enough, I'm 
going to be doing workshops around this book with teachers in BC. So wow, that is so exciting. That will be very interesting to see how that plays out. That I'm, I'm hoping so that it'll be a positive exciting. learning experience for teachers wow. as well. Wow, and that's coming later this year. Um, this fall. This yeah. fall. Okay, that's really exciting. We'd love to hear more about that. And and um, your book is going to be available everywhere. So that perhaps the chances of those workshops being taken outside of BC as well. As we're closing up for this part of the interview, and we look forward to having more parts um, uh, to this interview with you, Jasmine, after you've done some of your um, book touring and uh, come back to BC, uh, we'll really look forward um, to talking more about this and maybe um, even look forward to doing a book club um, on the book. But um, as we close up for now, there were a few more questions um, that I wanted uh, to ask you. and. Um, so we didn't even get to these topics yet. So it's a great thing we're going to have more parts of this interview because you've you've done such an amazing and inspiring job of um, weaving in um, Sikh Punjab uh, politics, um, Sikh Punjab history, um, the injustice of the Indian government, um, the stories um, that continue to be oppressed within those contexts. And um, especially um, in the context of our modern moment where the Indian government is um, continuing to try to um, oppress Sikh voices of uh, dissent. Um, I wanted to know, is there, especially because um, a lot of those stories were again through um, for women and from a woman's voice, from the women's perspective, is there a call to action sort of woven in kind of to the seams of the book? So I think that the poems themselves, to me, were part of that call to action. To be able to write this book um, and have it completely uncensored, knowing that it is going to be published in South Asia, was the most important part of writing this. One of the most important parts of writing this. Um, because when I first began putting together the book, I actually received an email from someone at Penguin India saying, um, we want to publish your work. And I was like, this is very interesting because to publish this work in India, um, and in Punjab, I don't know how your, this publishing house is very Indian publishing house is actually <laughs> going to feel about this. Yeah. I knew that they also published Arndati Roy's work. So that was, oh, okay. that was very interesting to me. So I was like, I'm going to write the book exactly as I want to write it. Let's see how they feel about it. <coughs> and what was interesting was the, my editor, I handed her, her the book and she got back to me after getting feedback from her entire team. And she said that it was a unanimous yes from everyone there, exactly how it was. And I was like, this is so interesting to me. The because, Indian, Indian editors. Yeah. Wow. They they loved it. And and exactly as it was, they did not tell me to change a single thing. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And let's see what happens. Um, wow. So on October 24th. And you was, write about Trilokpuri. Like you write yeah. about specific. So this book, I literally like call out Punjab police as um, having a history of like sexually assaulting women. So the fact that this will now be published in Punjab is a big deal to me. Huge deal. 
Because I feel like it's it's disrupting space and how people react to it will be so interesting. And I can't wait for it to be published just to see what happens. Because who knows what's going to (laughs) happen. Well, hopefully you don't, like, shake things up like you have already begun to shake things up here. I mean, you've said that you've gotten, you know, um, a spectrum of responses um, from different spaces, whether they're white spaces or um, uh, Punjabi Sikh men spaces. Um, and so um, hearing what the response will be in Punjab, hopefully it'll keep shaking things up. I hope so. I'm sure it will, no doubt. Um, and we're, we're going to be excited for that because I'm suspecting that perhaps is a part of what you hoped for. I think so. I think secretly definitely (laughs) um but i just i just want to see what happens and that's all i can say to that okay um jazzencore we're um at the end of our time and i feel like we barely skimmed um the topics uh that we wanted to talk about there's so much more it was so fascinating talking to you and so inspiring and and really such a pleasure getting to hear your voice behind the voice in this book um suffer i was so excited to be a part of one of the first um uh sick women interviews that you've um had a chance of doing and um we look forward um to continuing to highlight um, some of the amazing writing and the really important um, issues that you bring up in this book. Is there anything you wanted to say in closing? Um, I'm just very grateful that I got to share space with you today to have this conversation. I think that um, everything that we talked about today, um, like I said, these aren't always the directions that my my interviews take um, with non um, sick interviewers. So I think that I'm so happy that I got to like dig into these things that usually we just skim. Wow, we're so excited to hear that. So excited. And for everybody out there wanting to know once again where this book is available, it's available on Amazon, available at Chapters. Um, are there other lo- places? Um, literally every bookstore you think of. If you, I always recommend buying from independent bookstores. And even Wonderful. if it's not in stock, you can just ask them to request it. Um, or to just and order it for yeah, you. and order it to, your, to that local store. So you can grab it anywhere in the U.S. You can get it at Barnes and Noble, Target, all those kinds of places. Wonderful. And and from your mouth, um, once again, the name of the book. When you ask me where I'm going. By Jasmine Carr. Jasmine Carr, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank, thank you so for much. listening. I hope you enjoyed our first Core to Core podcast with Girpa Kaur and her interview with Jasmine Kaur about her debut novel, When You Ask Me Where I'm Going. If you have a chance, you can visit Jasmine Gore on her book tour as she goes across North America. You can also pick up your copy of her book and follow her on Instagram at Jasmine and follow the Sick Feminist Research Institute on Facebook. We'll see you next.